Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. Is it all over for Jorge Martin? After getting Pekka Banyaya's MotoGP World Championship lead back down to 7 points with a supreme Qatar sprint win, an awful Grand Prix left Martin 21 points adrift again, and sardonically furious as well. And now there's just next weekend's Valencia season finale left. But this is MotoGP 2023, so can we really get through a last round title decider without a load more twists and surprises? This is the Race MotoGP Podcast. I'm Matt Beer, Simon Patterson and Valentin Harunchi with me as usual, and we're a week away from knowing who our champion will be at last. But perhaps after Sunday night in Qatar, we can be a bit more certain about the outcome than we have been for a little while. So Val, Simon, let's look at what went wrong for Martin first of all. We'll talk about the good part of his weekend at some point as well, but let's go straight to Sunday night and a race that went sort of squiffily wrong from the moment he kind of got onto the throttle to start it with a, a wild twitch off the line, which he said was actually a symptom of what was to come come next. So who would like to explain Martin's take on why he just had basically no pace whatsoever through the Grand Prix? Go for it, Simon. Um, I mean, the long and short of it is that sometimes riders get bad tyres. Um, Michelin have had quality control problems for pretty much as long as they've been in MotoGP. Um, historically, that is an issue at some tracks more than others. Uh, Qatar has been a place where we've seen this over and over and over again in the past. Um, my most kind of most vivid memory of it is Juan Mir losing what he thought were two chances to win two races. Uh, whenever we were here back to back in the the start of the twenty twenty two season with Suzuki, um, and he was like quite strong all the way through practice, and then just nowhere in the race, um, and and put it down to this. Um, Paco Bagnaya had the same problem in the sprint race on Saturday, but not to the same extent. And yeah, Martin got a bad tire. There's no way of knowing. You've got a tire that's that's not good enough, it seems, until you start the race with it. Um, and it, it just doesn't work the same as all the other tires all weekend. You speak to any rider in the MotoGP grid and it's a super normal hear, thing to hear them complain about. Now, you did take Martin's comments, and we'll get onto Martin's comments because he wasn't subtle, to Michelin. And their response was that the investigation wasn't wasn't properly do- fully done yet, but from an initial look at the tyres, there was nothing wrong. There were other tyres in the field with more graining on them. Um, it's important to, for us to inc- include that response, but it's fair to say Martin would probably disagree with that. I mean, he you, you mentioned uh, when we were discussing the story earlier, Simon, before we started recording, that riders are usually a little bit careful about going direct. They sort of allude to something mysterious being wrong, and it's left to us to fill in the blanks. But Martin was kind of straight for the throat with Michelin here, wasn't he? Yeah, I think both of you heard what he had to say tonight, and he didn't mince his words. He, he was, you know, he was pretty, uh, pretty certain of what the problem was. Um, I'm not surprised, given what was on the line tonight, because I'm, I'm pretty sure this has maybe not cost him a world championship. Because I think Paco Bagnaya's pace today was was something really special. I think he had something in the bag there. Um, Martin would have been in the fight with him, but I, I don't think it, it's, you know, it's he wasn't going to win the championship tonight. Let's put it that way. Um, but yeah, this is, this is a persistent problem. It's one that Michelin haven't, you know, to be frank, haven't taken enough steps to fix in the time that it's been a problem because it's been a problem, like I said, since they got into this championship, basically. And... I don't know what the solution to it is because nothing the writers say seem to make it any better. Um, we wouldn't still be having this argument or this discussion, you know, over and over again if uh, if we were. I I do think in in Michelin's slight defence, I think that part of the problem that they're facing, or, you know, we're seeing here is that everything in MotoGP right now is super super sensitive, and that 
the slightest change in conditions can make a massive change to the feeling that a rider gets. And today was was probably a little bit hotter, a little bit less windy than yesterday. And I think, you know, and obviously the track is a little bit different because it is all the Moto2, Moto3, race rubber down, uh, Asia Town Cup race since, you know, there's been a lot of racing on the track since uh, the sprint race. So that will have changed things as well. And I think, you know, it's it's obviously not ideal that that is a thing that happens, but I think that's probably a slight contributing factor to it. But at the end of the day, the, you know, the, the bottom line is that our control tire manufacturer is making the occasional doff tire, and today it played a significant role in who's going to win this year's championship. The pace difference was clearly unnatural. I mean, Michelin may well come out and say that there was nothing structurally wrong with the tire, but whatever the explanation was, it is it is clear that there was an unnatural pace difference between Jorge Martin not just of Saturday, but of the last few rounds and Jorge Martin of, of today. I mean, yeah, it's it's super common that Michelin investigates these whenever writers complain about them and come back and tell us they found nothing. Um, that That's pretty standard. And I don't know whether that's that, you know, we're talking about something on a level that's very, very hard to detect or whether it's corporate ass covering. Um, it could be one or the other very easily. And that's that's nothing that that's no no slight on the the actual michelin motorsport team that are here putting this together because i think uh decisions to make that sort of news are public or not are made at a higher level if that's what it is but uh yeah we're we're, we're you know i i would be genuinely surprised if michelin come out put their hands in the in the air and said yeah we made a really horrible mistake here or this tire wasn't up to specification or anything like that it's there i'm playing devil's advocate slightly is there anything that a rider can do particularly differently if they get a tire that's not performing correctly? Are there, are there riders whose style might get them through these problems better? I'm, I'm, I'm being potentially a bit harsh on my team, but th- he is a man who is not necessarily the most gentle on his tires on the grid, or necessarily the most patient if things are going wrong. I, I think all you can do when it's like this is damage control, and, and it, it's more to do with being smart about how you race. Uh, to limit the damage rather than, you know, depending on the pace drop you have rather than anything that the rider can do. I mean, we, we saw that he had a problem literally the minute the lights went out. You know, there, there was very little he could do to manage that issue from that point onwards. And actually, to give him credit, I think he did a pretty good job of managing it today and trying as long as he could to limit the damage by holding guys who were obviously far, far faster than him behind him. I think it was fairly fortunate to have uh, Johan Zarco behind because without Zarco's assistance and a bit of rear gunner action, I think it could have been considerably more painful in the end. Um, I wonder if, if, if it turns out the tire was more or less okay by whatever specification, I wonder if if it just like if it got knocked out of the operating window this bad because what what happened to to Martini wasn't it clearly wasn't a tire wear thing. We, we we saw that he had no pace like it, it it flicked on like that it was it was a, a cliff of pace arriving but it, it came in after you know just just as he passed mark marquez and was starting to to make progress back towards towards the pack it looked like he was closing the gap a little bit and then suddenly he really wasn't at all so if if it's a, if it's an operating window thing it's it's really strange because just most MotoGP races don't look like this, don't work like this. I think in Formula One, you could expect sometimes, you know, the the weird magic of the Pirellis. Sometimes they work and then suddenly they're two seconds a lap slower. But in MotoGP, I think we don't really come across that kind of thing, which is why it is really, it's really hard to find a satisfying explanation here. And it's this one, I think, is going to run on and on. And it's... It's good that it is because if there is a a tire quality problem, then I mean, obviously, it's not great that a championship, whatever this is, it's not great that a championship fight is potentially being decided like this. But this is like the highest possible stakes version of the potential issue, and the, the best possible reason to really properly get to the bottom of it. The the one good thing about if this is, you know, something that plays a considerable part in the championship, which is what it now looks like, 
the one good thing is that it seems like uh, Bagnaya had a similar problem on Saturday. And the two of them don't quite cancel each other out, but it, it you know, it at least helps that uh, that they both have the same thing at the same time, roughly, and that it it, it changed the advantage in favour of Bagnaya, but it didn't swing the advantage. You know, it just extended his a little bit more. So, I I I, I don't think it's going to be any more the deciding factor than a number of other things, like you know, Brad Binder getting penalised and stuff like that. There's a lot of other little factors that also play a role in this. I mean, Martin lost 15 to to 10 points today. Martin lost 25 points crashing out of the lead in whatever track it was. I forget now. Martin lost... Yeah, Martin cost himself uh, 15 points or something like that by choosing the, the softer tyre in Australia. So there's this is the most novel one and he's right to be he's definitely right to feel aggrieved but it's it's a 50 round championship or whatever so yeah we can there's a lot of stuff we can point to that it has swung this championship one way or another and in a in a sense a, a few months ago looking about it a few months ago we can also say that it should never have been this close to begin with but i I know that's not much of a consolation or much of an excuse or anything like that. It's just trying to see it as more of a global picture type of thing. No, this certainly wasn't a championship a few months ago that we thought was going anywhere near a uh, a final round decider. Like you say, Peko had his own tyre problems, although he wasn't quite as specific as shouting tyres as uh, as Martin was in the Saturday race. the The outcome of the week of the Sunday race was that Martin slipped all the way down to 10th Banyaya finished second we'll talk a bit later about why he didn't win because someone else we need to give plenty of credit to this weekend um, that leaves them 21 points apart with 37 left on on the table um, how did did but how did Banyaya react to uh, to Martin Martin's explanation of what happened because that sounded like he was uh, a little bit more vocal on Sunday night yeah so um spoke to him about this asked him about this in the press conference after the race and he was very um, empathetic with what had happened to Martin and very kind of understanding that it's something that, that could happen to everyone and has happened, you know, him the day before, he believes. Uh, but he, he was, you know, he also kind of echoed what Val has just said, that it's a long championship and this hasn't been a decisive blow per se. It's something that happens to everyone now and then and that everyone has to manage and, you know what, Martin had to manage it today and Peko's extended his championship lead and it doesn't take anything away from uh, a potential second title if, if that's what happens in like six days and 20 hours time or whatever it is. It was quite an interesting contrast in reactions. If, we, if we're going to say they had similar problems, as seems to be the case, some of Martin's rhetoric about the championship being stolen from him was was pretty extreme. You can kind of understand that in the moment, but it, it was definitely definitely a weekend that showed the character contrast uh, between these two. And I think we saw it on track as well. Martin's moves on the way to victory on Saturday were were brilliantly uncompromising. There was basically contact between the two title rivals twice as Martin forced his way past, um, eventually successfully for good, then went on to to win the sprint race. I, I felt like the we sort of set it up all season as the clash between the sort of stealthy, calm Banyaya and the uh, fiery, glorious lunatic Martin. Definitely felt that way across this weekend, both in how they discussed their problems and, and on track, I felt. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to, to paint it that way requires you to, to, for, to forget how... Uh, Pekka Vanyai nearly blew second place in the in the closing stages of of today's True. race by doing whatever it was that was that was going to be. Uh, but yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Martin roughed him up quite good uh, in in the sprint in both of those moves. First, you know, rolling out of the brakes and forcing him a bit wide at turn one, which wasn't ultimately that consequential because they they slotted in third and fourth. It was fine, but then certainly. Uh, the the actual overtaking move that came later in the race was quite quite a quite an aggressive one and uh, Pekabanyai's reaction was interesting in that he basically said well game on now he's you know he set a precedent basically which I think now it's all academic because it's twenty one points between them so if they're if they're racing together it's sort of 
like Pegawan, yeah, doesn't have to do this anymore. He will not have to do this in Valencia. But I did sort of take him at his word a little bit because I think now that he's already MotoGP champion, knowing that Pekobanya, I think is it's quite important to him to be perceived as winning the right way. So I think he did genuinely mean it that he would ratchet up the aggression a little bit because he definitely he does not want to win the second title in any way that is seen as underhand as being team order aided as being any anything like that. Which is which is also why I wonder if uh, Grishini's mapping eight stunt today will have really got on on his nerves and on the nerves of Ducati. We'll get to that later, but. I imagine they were the least amused out of everyone. <laughs> I I would expect. You're correct. Um. Yeah. I. It, it was. It was. It was. It was an interesting sort of contrast, indeed. Although I'm sure Banya is also completely capable of of pulling out moves like that. And Martin saw absolutely nothing out of the ordinary with him. And I don't know if he if he was genuinely speaking that way or being a bit, you know, pretend because. When you when you uncork a move like that on a on a championship rival, okay, it wasn't the full the full Masia Moto three experience, but it was not that far off. So you, you can you can see how it's quite quite a substantial thing to be doing and quite the the gauntlet to be laid down. It's really, it really is a bummer that all that is mostly academic now, isn't it? Because it really whatever is. happens in Valencia now, it just it doesn't feel like this will matter in the way that it could have mattered. I mean, the, the reason that this is largely academic now isn't that even the points gap. It's that Valencia is a horrible place to end a championship, and there's nowhere to actually pull stunts like that at. Uh, it's the most ridiculous circuit to end a season at that's ever been invented. Um, I don't think we've ever mentioned that before in the podcast, apart from every time Valencia is mentioned. Um, th- this was. I mean, in, in fairness, F1's going to finish a season at Abu Dhabi yet again, and that makes Valencia look full of character and excitement, <laughs> unless something really ridiculous happens once ever. I was, I uh, was going to say, I was going to say old spec Abu Dhabi because the new spec actually has a, a couple of those corners that are decent-ish. That's that's you're being, you're being very yeah. That's this being very generous. Let's get back to Valencia, which is rubbish in a different way. I, I can say one thing for certain, and that's the. The uh, the weather in Abu Dhabi for the finale of uh, F1 is, is pretty much guaranteed to be better than the weather in the finale of MotoGP in Valencia, which is another factor that has quite a few of the guys, you know, these two championship contenders quite worried. Um, I, I think this weekend was another example of, of what I've been saying for a while, that Jorge Martin is arguably the faster rider right now, but uh, Peko Bagnaia is still the better racer. He, he's still the smarter guy. He's still the guy that's kind of choosing when his moments are. And we know he can be aggressive. We've seen his aggressiveness at other points this season. But it's kind of like Martinez just aggressive. He's aggressive in everything he does. Like you see the guy opening a door and he does it aggressively. It is just <laughs> his nature. Yeah, this is something I've this is something I've seen today. You know what I mean? He, it's just the way he goes about life. Whereas Peko's Peko's aggression is kind of his secret weapon in a way because he's absolutely capable of it. We've seen him make some absolutely ruthless passes this year, but he only does it when he needs to. He doesn't do it whenever he thinks he can have another option. Um, I think we saw a very brief moment of it this afternoon until it almost went completely wrong uh, when he tried to to take the lead of the race back with, with a pretty aggressive move and it didn't work. But, you know, that was him... That was him using his, you know, the aggression that he does have in a situation where he felt it was necessary, but he wasn't trying to do that move every corner of the last few laps, like, uh, you know, maybe Martin would have been in the same place. So, yeah, I, I it's, it, it is an absolute shame that those two have had some great races together this year, uh, that we didn't get to see another one of them on Sunday. And, uh, you know, the championship is still on the line and we're absolutely not going to see one of them at Valencia because it's just not physically possible at that horrible go-kart circuit. (laughs) Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best. And that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear 
helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, we've uh, we've not mentioned the winner, as is often the case, but we've kind of hinted at it loads of times because we're actually really, really excited about this one. Fabio Di Antonio won a Grand Prix. An outcome I don't think... We might have actually, in Moto3 time, might have seen this coming. He was among Martin, Marco Bezzecchi, Ennio Bastanini in his, in his last Moto3 season. Since then, I don't think any of us at any point until the last couple of weeks have seen Fabio Di Antonio as a MotoGP race winner. But he is. It was like... A, I, I saw it as a kind of... Um, LinkedIn job application half front row on Saturday when you had Luca Marini on pole ahead of Di Gian Antonio. You know, Marini on the on the cusp of taking the Repsol Honda ride vacated by Mark Marquez. Digia kicked out by Mark Marquez from Grassini in line for that Repsol ride, but now probably jobless. We'll get onto that in a second. But um, let's talk about his pace this weekend. Uh, Val, you can go first with this one. You've you've kind of banged the Digia drum on and off for a bit this season. Th- this man looked fast. You predicted that he would win the Grand Prix very early in proceedings. Yeah, uh, it was, actually, I predicted it to myself a little earlier than I was willing to go with it publicly <laughs> in the in the word chat. I, I, he, the okay. earliest person to predict that Digia w- would win was remarkably Digia, who in the in his media session on Thursday said that the win was his only target, which would have sounded like the, the stupidest, most absurd thing ever for a rider who was the eighth fastest Ducati for, for so much of his time there. But after Australia, where I think he really could have won, it it sounded a lot less... Like, even in, in that moment when, when I heard him say it, I, I thought it didn't sound too ridiculous. And then the weekend started, and it just... Like, it, it felt more and more right with every step. So, for Friday practice... Track's still a bit dirty. There was a moment in, in the first session where he went a, a second quicker than everybody else. And there were already a lot of lap times on the board. And there was, you know, there was Gian Antonio going a second quicker, which I think is shows your sort of level of confidence in sketchy conditions. Obviously, then the track improves and those, you know, those gaps all become smaller. But it shows that you're, you know, you're, you feel confident. You feel right with the bike. Uh, I think in, in Q2... He looked a very strong contender for pole, and I suspect still the way the session played out, I think he was probably fastest. But it's you know it's hard to tell, and ultimately you know Luca Marini did did get the pole position. But also seeing that front row with the with the older Spectacatis, it felt like Dijan Antonio was the the quickest of them in terms of race trim and race longevity, and it. It came true in both in both races. On in the sprint, Jorge Martin did did get ahead of him and fought him off. But it already even in the sprint, it looked like if the race had been longer, Di Gian Antonio might have had more. So for me, increasingly like with every step of the weekend, you get this this dreadful, horrible thought of, oh, this is your weekend, buddy. Yeah, after this is you can win this. This is very winnable for you. 
So for me, it was almost like the dread part of it was surely something's going to go wrong, right? Because if this is the one chance and it is such a good chance and it is the penultimate weekend potentially of his full-time MotoGP career, surely something has to go wrong. And I thought the thing that was going to go wrong was probably Peko Banyai doing his usual Sunday trick of, oh, I have, I'm just a second quicker per lap now. Whoops. <laughs> um, and it almost happened. But the more the race unfolded again, the more it looked like that actually Di Antonio had his number. And that, that turned out to be very much the case. He, he had his number throughout. It was, it was his race to lose. He was the quickest. I would not be surprised that even if Jorge Martin had a normal race that Di Antonio would have still had more. I think he was the quickest rider on track. I think he was the quickest rider this weekend. I think it, it it's insane that they used mapping eight as the as the message <laughs> for go for it. But the, the fact that they pre-agreed that, and not just the joke, but the fact that they had a pre-agreed dashboard message for, okay, pull the pin, shows that there was clearly an awareness from Di Antonio and Crucci, Frankie Carchetti, that the race was theirs for the taking, that it was they could do this and yeah they did it while also referencing a ducati team order for some reason is is wild it was insane it was it was wonderful it felt great i'm glad it happened for him and i i felt a little smug because i did i did go with that prediction on saturday in the chat but i should have done it on thursday i should have said look this sounds ridiculous but i believe him because i did believe him and yeah I um I went after the race, uh, after the press conference and everything, I went down to the paddock to find Frankie Carcetti, to find his crew chief, and and uh, had to sit and wait for a while because him and DJ were doing their technical debrief as if he hadn't just won a race. They, oh, they still sat down and went through all the telemetry together. Uh, and then Frankie came out and sat with me in pit wall for a while and we, you know, we talked it through. And the the story behind the the map and eight thing is actually even more uh, more well thought out than than we had even expected. Um, Frankie told me that uh, a few a few months ago, whenever they were first talking about future contracts, and Gigi was uh, Gigi was first talking to Grissini about staying for next year, they they called him into a meeting and. Before they went in, DJ said to him, "Look, tell them I can win a race. Tell them I can I can win a MotoGP race." And Frankie said, "Look, look, I I can't. You you're not there. You're not ready to win a MotoGP race yet. You know it's it's not there." And he was honest with the team when they asked his opinion. And then he said, "You know things have improved." And then they started to go to race weekends, and he started to tell DJ, "You can be in the podium this weekend." And we saw that he could. And and he said that this weekend, this was the first time that. He sat down with him and said, "Look, you are going to win this if you if you do what you're told." And you know, we we use the strategy that we come up with. And Frankie's only regret of the day is that he didn't write down the plan that they made uh, before the race started, so that he could show it to us afterwards and prove that he had actually came up with the plan. Because <laughs> they said. The, the plan that they made was that uh, he needed to be in third for the first 50% of the race to make sure that his tire pressure was in the right margin and that he wasn't going to get a penalty for that. Then he needed to make a move and get through into second behind whichever Ducati it was and sit there until there was five laps to go. And then with five laps to go, it was time to pull the pin and, and forget about, you know, forget about everything and try and win it. And the signal to pull the pin was mapping it because they thought that would be quite funny. And... It was quite funny, and it really, really pissed off Davide Tardazzi in the factory Ducati garage, which is even funnier. Uh, you know, but they, they they wrote the strategy. They DJ played the strategy that the Carcetti told him to use, and it couldn't have happened to a nicer kid. I'm so genuinely pleased for him. Um, all, all the contract talk aside, all the you know the the drama about his future and everything aside. One of the best things about the second half of this MotoGP season has been seeing people becoming Fabio Di Gentonio fans because suddenly he's getting a bit more TV time and people are realizing what a good kid he is and how switched on he is. And, and you know, he's funny and he's he's personable and, and people are getting to see that now. And, and I re I'm really enjoying watching people sort of discover this guy that we've been working with for a year and a half and, and you know, seeing him up close. Now others are getting to see him. 
just in case anyone listening is relatively new to MotoGP, we should fill in the backstory of of mapping eight, Simon. So, re, re, just for a bit of retro, when was this famously deployed by Ducati? Because it had a very different meaning, didn't it? Ooh, twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen? Sepang Malaysian Grand Prix. Uh, Mark Marquez is fighting Andrea Davizioso for a title, and Davizioso's teammate Jorge Lorenzo is enlisted to help him out in the race with, with some very clear team orders that were to be activated whenever Ducati told Lorenzo mapping eight, whenever MotoGP bikes only have mapping one, two, and three. Um, Lorenzo famously ignored the team orders because he decided that he was faster than both Davizioso and Marquez and he was just going to do it his own way, um, which he was kind of right, but it didn't really help Davi too much at the time. Uh, but the, the mapping it very much en- entered into MotoGP folklore at that point. Yeah, and so when it was uh, deployed on Sunday night, the irony of it being at a time when this kid who's fighting for his whole future, who's, well, I was going to say definitely out of Ducati fold. Actually, he isn't definitely out of Ducati fold. We'll talk about that next up. But at a moment when you're wondering, is Ducati going to say leave off our championship leader for that, for that signal to come out was absolutely hilarious and a little bit alarming at the time because there was a second of thinking, uh, is that actually the official Ducati order saying don't fight for the win? So glad it wasn't. Nah, <laughs> nah that was never going to be. I'm surprised. I'm, I am surprised how many people were were seemingly fooled and that's not to that's not to say i'm never fooled by you know stupid nonsense but everything everyone involved has said about the situation every week that was there's never an order was coming ever ever and yeah honestly it's probably ducati's probably happier for this outcome than imagine if mapping eight did come out and then did Antonio followed Panyaya home uh, at the checker flag it would have been awful the worst thing I don't know like a, a, a year or so ago like before we got into this world of Ducati winning everything and allowing its satellite bikes to rampantly fight for titles against its works bikes I would have not been at all surprised for any factory team in this position to go actually can you stop hassling the guys going to win the title for us but absolute fair place Ducati I hope this approach doesn't end up biting them when more when more marks are competitive but it's it is fun it's the only reason we have a title fight this year they could have they could have stopped that and, and they haven't and thank you Ducati for for doing that it's also set Grissini Ducati up to uh, very nicely um become back to back they're now back to back winners uh, in Qatar because last year's race was yeah. won by Enea Bastinini this year's race was won by Fabio Di Gentonio and who makes his debut on the Grissini Ducati the next time we come to Qatar Indeed. Well, we said that we, we said this in our work chat on on Saturday. I I had this moment of going, hang on, Grissini Ducatis are absolutely rampaging around at the moment with both Alex Marquez and Digia. That's that's a very ominous sign of when Mark Marquez is sat on one of those bikes. Okay, be a different bike by next year, but as a general concept, it's a very quick team package, isn't it? I mean, it's going to be a better bike. Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, very true. Yeah, yeah, even more dominant in its in its current spec. Um, we'll, we've got plenty of time to predict exactly what Mark Marquez will do with that bike next season, but um, it's it's fair to say he's, he's heading for something that is currently very competitive, and that is that is ominous. Um, but we should talk about what happens to DeGiantonio next season, whether he'll still be on the grid as well. What there've been a lot of twists in that saga. Probably when we last spoke on the podcast, it was looking more and more like that he'd be back down in Moto Two, if anything. A few more things have happened since then, but it's still, I, I guess the most likely outcome is still that the guy who won the race is not going to be on the grid after next weekend. Yeah, it, it sounds that way. And the, the worst part is he, I I get it. I understand why. In a, in a way, I think now that Luca Marini is vacating a VR46 Ducati ride, I think clearly De Gian Antonio has shown as of late that he'd be a very a very handy signing to put in there alongside Marco Bezzecchi. I mean, VR46 uh, came up short of the team's title this year, which I think has officially gone to Pramac, I believe, today. Or it, it should have, mathematically, and I imagine it did, which they didn't celebrate that much for obvious reasons. But VR46 was in that in that championship race for, for so much of the season before sort of Marco Bezzecchi and Luca Marini both got injured. In, in short succession, and it sort of derailed. And Marco Bezzecchi was a, a total non-factor this weekend for some reason. Very weird, anonymous weekend for him. Anyway, I digress. Um, Dijan Antonio would have been 
a great signing for VR36 Ducati, I think, and still might be. Uh, Uccio Salucci, Valentino Rossi's right hand, said earlier in the weekend that he wasn't quite the right profile of rider, but I think... I don't think I don't think it's to do with profile. I just think MotoGP's brains are being scrambled by Fermin Aldegar. And it's fair because my brains are also being scrambled by Fermin Aldegar. Um I I'm I, I understand I might come across as like a, a fan, and I'm really not like I'm not trying to come across as a fan because it's that's not my job here. My job is to try to assess what I see and to convey to you who I see the you know as promising riders, who I see as riders who might perform, might not perform, and why they might or might not perform. So there's nothing, like absolutely nothing personal in this. From a personal standpoint, I would love Fabio Gianantonio on the 2024 20, MotoGP grid, but Furman Aldeguer has been doing unspeakable things to the Moto2 field these past few weekends. It's been, it's been wild to watch. Um, Simon will attest I was writing extremely puzzled Slack messages today during the during the Moto Two race, because Fermin Aldeguer, who is eighteen, who won the last two Moto Two races by a combined ten seconds or something, uh, made a lap two mistake in today's race and ended up ninth. And it looked like okay, finally, finally some normalcy, and then just one by one every lap he was overtaking something with somebody with ridiculous ease, like he was just he had a different level of grip, like he was riding a different class bike. And by lap nine or something, he was back into the lead. And by checkered flag, he was two seconds in the clear. This this isn't it isn't supposed to be like this. Modi two doesn't work like this. There's Pedro Acosta in that field. What are you doing? What's going on? <laughs> but you hit the nail on the head, Val. He is riding a different bike from the rest of the field. Of course, yes. And that and therein, I think, lies a large not not a large part but a, a substantial part of what we've seen this weekend in the last few weekends for me is very very talented and he will be a MotoGP rider not too long in the distant future but he's riding a speed up bike uh there's two of them in the grid there's two forward bikes in the grid and then the other 24 machines are calyxes the speed up bike has worked ridiculously well literally since they turned up in the championship at circuits that have low grip and Aldegar's wins have come at low grip circuits and I think at least a part of what we're seeing from him right now is because of the bike that he's on and the fact that it is substantially better on those types of tracks than literally every other bike in the grid um I think you know, normally when you're one of when you when you're in his position on a on a speed up, a Boscoscuro as they're also called, um, it, it kind of makes life difficult for you because there's not a lot of comparison against the army of Calyxes. But at the same time, when your bike's the only one that work that's working uh, against an army of Calyxes, it kind of makes you look like a god. And I think that there's a little bit of that going on at the minute. The the other factor, though, the the reason that I don't think. The reason that I think DJ should get the VR46 ride is that the Valentino Rossi set up the VR46 Academy to promote young Italian talent and to put a Spaniard into it in their MotoGP team is kind of a betrayal of everything it's all about. It doesn't quite fit. It very much, you know, if they do it, it's going to be something that they've done for quick results. And that wasn't ever the point of the team. That's, you know, the, the, the point of this team, the point of this whole program has been something else. And it would make me a little bit sad, I think, if they kind of betrayed that just because there's a hot young talent that, you know, they think they can get whenever no one else can get, despite the fact that it's it's not something that aligns with, you know, everything else they've done. Especially when there's a, a proven MotoGP race winner from Italy who's floating around doing nothing at the minute. You make it sound like it's like Athletic Bilbao signing non-Basque players or something, rather than. But it, it literally is. But it, yeah, except there has like, never been a non-Italian in the Basque. You know, if, <laughs> it's it's not like there's a shortage of Italian <laughs> riders on the MotoGP grid. No, no, no. But, but, but without, no, 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 no. But how many non-VR46 Italian riders are in the MotoGP grid? Not as many. Fabio Di Antonio. <laughs> Fabio well, DiGentonio. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's, no, it's a minority. It's a massive minority. Yeah. And that is because of Rossi. Yeah. Yes. That, I, I see what you mean, but it's it's like that part of it. 
you know, the Italian writer part of it doesn't doesn't bother me as much. I I don't know if Herman Aldegar is the most natural fit for VR forty six. I you know, there was a report by GP one that Ducati might prefer to just commit him to Pramac in twenty five. And in twenty four he rides the third year of the speed up deal with you know Luca Boscascuro that he would otherwise have to be bought out of. And that would maybe be tidier for everyone. Which I've heard is going to cost 400,000 euros to buy him out of it. Yeah. I mean, like it, I tell you what, this weekend looks, looks like a bargain sometimes. I know, I know what you're <laughs> saying about this. I know what you're saying about the speed up thing. And I know, you know, sort of the, the magic of that speed up bike is part of what helped Fabio Quartararo become what, it, what he is today in MotoGP. The magic of that speed-up bike is what helped Alonso Lopez be the maybe the best Moto2 rider of last season somehow, or at least there or thereabout. But first of all, Fabio Quartararo is a rock star and is great, so thank you for that. We just The speed-up bike just showed us what we needed to know. It didn't yeah. really, it didn't inflate his greatness, if anything, it yeah, it kind of restored it, didn't yeah. it after it was yes. very yes. confusingly hidden for a little while. But secondly, Fabio Quartararo and Alonso Lopez weren't doing this. This is I, I still maintain that this is wild. I like every session you look at. Fermin Aldeguer is right there, and it, there were lower grip tracks earlier this season. It wasn't happening. Like it's like it's like they gave him a boost button at some point. It, you know what I mean? It's just it. It's such a weird step in performance. I think I vaguely remember something like this happening to Alex Marquez at some point in one of his seasons in Moto2, one of his 50 seasons. But <laughs> this, at, at age 18, this is just, I think it's wild and weird and amazing. That's what I think it is. And I can't blame any MotoGP team talent evaluators and, and scouts for, again, as I, as I said before in previous episodes of the podcast, wanting to get in on the ground floor. And I also think that Honda should now look ridiculous by immediately going, no, we never offered Firmin Aldegar anything. Who is he? Like, now, the thing is, now Firmin Aldegar might be too hot of a prospect for your current bike. So that's how that works. Yeah. <laughs> it does, we're potentially, if, it's, if this all goes through the way it might do, I still feel like loads of Ducati riders are going to next season in the wrong places at Ducati. I still don't think there's a, the, the the argument for Bastianini still being on the works bike, not Martin, still looks flimsy even after that win. Frankie Morbidelli should be at VR46 restoring his reputation, getting his confidence back. Not at Pramac, especially now there's a VR46 gap, potentially. Or, well, certainly, we know Marini is going to Repsol. He's basically admitted that now. And Yeah, basically, you want Morbidelli and Bezecchi at VR46. You probably put... Aldegar and Bastianini at Pramac and you have this year's title rivals in the works team you have an entire Marquez family at Grassini I'm up for that I know it's not going to happen but that just seems like the neatest solution to, to everything for me oh hang on have I left Digi off the grid yeah. yeah yes you have damn it <laughs> which is exactly I think what Ducati has done just now yeah like, that's the, the, same, uh... <laughs> the same thought yeah. process yeah poor guy poor guy he's Look, I, he, I, I'd like to also, I'd like to make it clear that he should be on the grid. He was fantastic this weekend, and a guy who can do this on a MotoGP weekend should be here. And I think whatever happens for 2024, I think this is the kind of weekend that even MotoGP has short memories, but you don't forget this. So the, he, his, his phone is going to be getting some calls at some point, whether they are the best seats. Mm, whether they are as good as his current seat, I really doubt it because I think his current seat might be actually secretly phenomenal, not so secretly now. But I think like people won't forget. There's no way we can't. I uh, I went back a few weeks ago and, and double checked this, and there's only twice that a MotoGP race winner has not had a seat for the following season in MotoGP. Uh, one of those was Casey Stoner when he announced his retirement, which is you know different circumstances. The only other one is, uh, ironically, Fabio Antonio's racing hero, Toy Bayless, when he won that, that Valencia wildcard in 2006. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, it, it makes it an unprecedented situation. No one's actually lost a ride as such. I, there's a little bit, with Digi's little surge at the end of the season, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess, I've had a few months of going, is this just a Tony Elias thing? 
like a rider suddenly looking good when they're out of a job, you know, who's only going like, to do little flashes of pace and then disappear again. But I think um, DeGiantoni has now shown more consistent pace for longer than Elias did at any point in his MotoGP career because that was, that was a very peaky MotoGP career. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There was, uh, before the racing actually started this weekend, there was something a bit unsavory, a bit messy and um, very contentious happened between Alicia Spagaro and Franco Morbidelli, not even in qualifying, but in the practice session leading into qualifying. Um, it ended with a €10,000 fine and a sixth-place grid penalty for Spargo. Well, I say it ended there, it kind of continued when both riders talked about it afterwards. Now, it's quite a spread-out process because of uh, an injury that meant uh, Spargo didn't give his side of the story until 24 hours, 24 hours after Morbidelli had basically laid into him. Um, who fancies describing what actually happened on-slash-off-track, first of all? Well, you both sat back looking a bit reluctant, so <laughs> Val, go for it. Yeah, it's because so much has happened on track. I'm, I'm not sure, like, the events leading up to it were entirely clear other than uh, Aleish felt that he was basically blocked, impeded by a, a cruising Franco Morbidelli. Then they sort of raced for track position a little bit after that, exchanging exchanging positions. Then Aleish barged past Franco down the inside of, of, of turn six, that took them both to the long lap loop, after which Aleish, already quite mad and you know gesticulating a bit, seemed to be quite keen to get on with it, while Franco seemed keen to pull alongside him and tell him to chill out. And while in the process of pulling alongside him, they, they ride out of the long lap loop, Franco Morbidelli pulls alongside Aleish Spargo, sort of extends his arm to tell him to chill out. And in that same time, Aleish Spargo, I think, I think tries to push him off. That's I think that's true. That it looks it looks correct to me, but because it's it's sort of hard to do like to handle other people while you're on a bike. What it turns into instead is a slap on the head. It's a slap on the helmet. He, he ends up slapping Franco Morbidelli. Basically, uh, it takes maybe half a second for him to realize what happened. After which he very sheepishly rides off from the from the scene. <laughs> While Morbidelli continues cruising around with a sort of... You can't see his face because he's in a helmet, but a facial expression like, can you believe that guy? Can you believe what just happened? So, yeah, it was... Like, it's it's an accident that the... Like, this, the accident. An incident that the second you see it, you realize, oh, this is... Firstly, this is today's news agenda. And secondly, ooh, this is, this is something that that person really wants to take back. If there's a... If there's a Life is Strange style rewind button, Alicia Spargo would be hammering the absolute hell out of that in the in the seconds after. In in the end, didn't didn't really make a huge difference to his weekends because the you know the grid penalty only applied for Sunday and in Saturday's race, Alicia Spargo was uh, T-boned, rammed into by fellow Prelia rider Miguel Oliveira. In an incident in which Espargaro sustained a small fracture, for a fracture can't can't speak fracture to his left ankle, which was all apparently all bloodied. He said he was on a bomb of drugs riding on Sunday. That was quite the and, phrase, wasn't it? Yeah, which honestly makes it like this is this is not against Leish. And it's look, I know medical. I'm not a medical professional. Whatever. I don't. I don't think this is like some sort of negligence. As I think it's just. Just what's the value in letting riders whose legs are swollen with blood ride around? Like they can physically, they are capable of doing that. Even though Alicia Spargo ultimately pulled over with six laps, yeah, completed, they can do it. Just no value to it. We don't need to do it. Just for their own good, declare him unfit and have him buzz off. That's what I think. That's what should have happened. Um, but that's you know, I digress. And obviously, Miguel Oliveira, poor guy, sustained 
a season-ending shoulder blade fracture, which, if you remember, Inea Bastianini's shoulder blade fracture basically nearly completely messed up his MotoGP career in the specific timing of it. And at the very least, for Miguel Oliveira, it'll be a, a multi-month spell on the sidelines and now a race to get fit for the preseason. Well, which maybe, you know, maybe it's less severe. Maybe we'll see. Hard to tell. Who knows? Um, but yeah, so after they both, you know, they both spoke about it, Franco Morbidelli was understandably very, very upset in any case, dropped some really good choice lines about how uh, he wants, you know, how the Stewart's penalty basically exactly put Alicia Spargo on the same row as him on Sunday, and instead he wants him 100 meters away at all times, which is just a, a very funny thing to say. Also said that Aleish had more things to be ashamed of than proud of, which is, like, at this point you're basically cutting a wrestling promo. And <laughs> also said that I wonder what he'll say to his kids, which was the big point of contention, which Aleish, discussing it afterwards, uh, that really clearly got to Aleish as did the fact that Aleish sees Franco Morbidelli, somebody who re reliably and repeatedly doesn't pay attention to other riders on fast laps. So that's that's the sort of, that's the crux of the issue. That's the crux of the conflict. Um, a lot of, I think there's been a lot of really overreactions on both sides, if that makes any sense. But that's just because I'm a stupid idiot who reads social media a lot. But there were some people who, thought it's just, you know, it's no big deal to get slapped by a colleague effectively for millions and millions of people to see, which I don't think is the case. I think Franco Morbidelli, I understand why he reacted like that, because it's just, it's just goddamn embarrassing. You just don't, you don't want that to happen. Like if, if we were live streaming this podcast and somehow one of you hit me upside the head, I feel real bad about it. It, it would ruin <laughs> my day and arguably my weekend. And I, you know, even if even if I wasn't necessarily at fault, it feel really, really unpleasant and really sad. And I would feel like I have to say some really unpleasant things about you in return. Anyway, that's quite hypothetical. But at the same time, it wasn't like a punch. It wasn't clear. I, I'm very, very clear to me that it was not intended in any way, shape, or form to cause physical harm. Maybe the penalty should have been a bit more severe to Aleish, like back of the grid or something. Maybe because you just don't do this kind of thing. I think he realized immediately once he did it that you cannot do it. And honestly, I wasn't too impressed with him trying to contextualize it afterwards. Like, just, just did a stupid thing. Just say you did a stupid thing. You shouldn't have done it. Easy. Uh, easy. Easy for me to say. Uh, but also, he's not like... He's not like one of history's greatest monsters, okay? See, like, a lot of people clearly regard Alicia Parker as somebody who's holier than thou. He speaks too much who has an opinion on too many things and who, you know, clearly he's no better than everybody else if he, you know, slaps Franco Morbidelli across the, across the head. And I, I, I implore those people to just chill out a little bit. Franco Morbidelli's allowed to overreact because he just got slapped across the head, but you need to, you need to chill out. This, this is a, a workplace dispute between two very thoughtful, very, you know, clearly good guys. And I, you know, I don't see how they bury the hatchet anytime soon, but we need we need not make it bigger than what it is. I I think a lot of a, there was a lot of playing to the stereotypes of what people at home think these two guys are, and to be perfectly honest, I think they were both a bit out of line with the whole thing. Um, Aleish is obviously seen as the guy who's super highly strong and and you know, passionate and fiery and who does dumb stuff occasionally like this. But I've never seen him be violent before. And the guy's been here for 25 years. We would have seen it before now if it was the case. Um, I genuinely think he, he did something stupid, but he wasn't trying to do what he did. Um, he shouldn't have done it. But, you know, as, as his brother, his brother Paul made a really good defense, actually, while talking about uh, Marco Bezzecchi rather than, than Aleish, about, you know, at... at 190 BPM and 360 kilometers an hour with your adrenaline through the roof, you do dumb stuff occasionally that you immediately regret. Um, and, and that's what it was. I'm pretty sure. Which, by the way, speaking of the, because you mentioned the Marco Bezzecchi thing, we should explain to people who 
maybe don't watch Friday practice because they have better things to do on Friday. Uh, they have lives. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't I didn't go I didn't go that far, but I like I thought it. <laughs> anyway, that's it's a very very poor choice of words from everybody involved, but um you look you have a life if you watch Friday practice. It's fine. We all watch questionable stuff. God damn it. Anyway <laughs> anyway um Mark Bitecki uh, rammed into the back of uh, Polish Pargro on like six separate occasions in, in, in at the end of one of the Friday practice sessions when they were doing practice starts after, again, some also fairly minor but similar sort of looking on-track disagreement. And in that moment, I was 100% sure that Marco Pizzecki should get a penalty because to me it just looked like an incident of road rage. Like he was just trying to... Is basically he was trying to take it out on on Espargo during practice starts at a live track. It, it looked unacceptable to me. And also, in Mark Marquez was another rider who said that you know Alicia Espargo was right to be penalized, but how did Marco Vizecchi get away with it? And I I was of a similar persuasion. Then I heard Marco Vizecchi talk about it, and he said he was it was basically a joke. And thing is, I believe him, and it immediately changes my whole perspective on the situation. Like as soon as I'm like, oh, he's just playfully messing about with him to try to get his attention suddenly it doesn't feel serious anymore so i don't really know what to do with myself in that particular context because the footage still the same <laughs> nothing changed in that regard i only the presumed in intent changed in my head and now suddenly it's completely fine i don't know that probably tells tells me more about me than the actual incidents but yeah just just wanted to clear up what the what the market was thing was i just started going on a little um tangent in my head wondering about how you perform on jury service val given everything you've just discussed <laughs> yeah val would be that <laughs> one juror that everyone hates because he, he he spends a lot of time a lot of time going over stuff again um the, on the on the other side of the uh the coin with the the uh morbidelli espicaro issue um Franco Morbidelli has spent a lot of time over the course of not just this weekend, but previous weekends talking about respect and, and how he perceives that there's a bit of a lack of respect from writers towards each other right now. Um, to, to, to do that, to say that, and then to just immediately default to Aleish did something I don't like, so I'm going to disparage his entire career and talk shit about his parenting style <laughs> was a bit hypocritical. It went a bit beyond, you know, and this is the same guy who last week was talking about a lack of respect in the grid and then beckoning Mark Marquez past him uh, like you would with a dog, as he admitted afterwards. It, it's, you, you, you can't say things like that and then do actions that, that contradict what you're saying. I get completely what he means about a lack of respect, but also, you know, I understand why Aleish was, was really annoyed about the comment about his kids. And I'm pretty sure that Aleish's counter to that comment would be that it's probably a whole lot less mentally scaring to his kids to see him, uh, you know, slapping a, uh, Morbidelli for being a bit of an idiot than it would be to see him run into the back of Morbidelli at 150 miles an hour because he's messing around cruising during a practice session again, which has become a bit of an issue recently and he's been lucky to get away repeatedly with not being penalised for it. Uh, yeah, no one come out of this covered in glory, as far as I see it. No one. Yeah, I, 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 I think Morbidelli was out of line in what he said. I agree, but also, again, you have to put yourself in a headspace of a person who just got slapped across the head by a coworker on live you say television. That, you say that, but when he spoke to us, he hadn't just been. It was like six hours later. It's not. It's not gonna. It's not gonna heal. It's not gonna heal in six hours. Like that kind of thing. I think just yeah, doesn't. No, one of the one of those things happened instantly, and one of them is obviously something that's been festering away inside him for a few hours. Uh, also, it's not like Morbidelli's on track form gives him much of a distraction. I, I don't even can't even remember where he qualified or finished in the sprint race. But he had nothing else much to think about because he was trundling around in the midfield again. Yeah, like he has been for his entire factory Yamaha career. I do think that plays into it on both sides. You know, this is another season where a lot of Aprilia promise hasn't really worked out. Okay, there's some great wins earlier in the year, but this has been a title a title bid in the end. There have been some really wasted weekends. And like I say, Morbidelli's factory Yamaha career has just been rubbish from start to finish. These are two frus frustrated guys in the frustrated season. I, uh, I, I get 
uh, I, I actually quite I found it quite endearing that Paul was sort of doing the Aspargo family honor thing on Saturday night because Elijah wasn't around for a media debrief after his injury. And I absolutely sympathize with that whole your adrenaline's high, you're racing this this fast, this hard, you no one else who's not a MotoGP rider can relate. I absolutely get all that, but I just felt like, okay, that's fine. Go and go and slash his tires in the garage or something. Go and shove him around in the in, in the garage. I've got a real problem with taking something out physically when you're on the bikes, when you're on track, when even if it's the end of a session, you're just you're chancing stuff a bit too much. Yeah, I, I've not just advocated some vandalism, but I just think that's better than than doing it on an active racetrack. Ad- adrenaline or not, these these are some pretty experienced experienced guys. Just yeah, I, I think the penalty could have been harsher. To be honest, I'm not offended by the by what it was, but I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't shrug this one off. I, th- I think a back of the grid would have been absolutely fair because I, d- I don't, I don't, th- I don't get what kind of pious about going. Oh, lots of teenage racers will see this and decide it's instantly acceptable and go and slap each other's helmets. I think I, that's way over the top. But just teenage racers already do that. Yeah, they don't need to see an old guy doing that to get that idea. Yeah, but just don't just save your grievances when you get back in the pit lane and then yeah. Yeah, I'm advocating fighting and vandalism again, but just don't do it on the bike. That's my that's the moral of my story. I, I don't think slashing tires is very safe <laughs> compared to what to what in, happened in the garage. In the garage, especially with how small the well, have you seen how small the Michelin tire allocation is? <laughs> I bet Jorge Martinez is slashing some tires right now as we record this podcast. <laughs> Probably his own into a lot of pieces, <laughs> just, and then throwing them. Do whatever higher cars, whatever higher car in the parking has a Michelin tire on it. <laughs> Speaking of Martin, uh, so our our predictions game at the end of the last podcast, um, we had actually had a spot on victory this time. So I predicted that Banya would be leading by two points after this weekend. I was emphatically wrong. Val predicted Banya would be leading by sixteen points, which was pretty almost correct. Simon, you predicted the exact outcome. Banyaya leaving Qatar with a 21-point lead. So... Ridiculous. <laughs> for the last time this season, I'd like predictions. Final championship winning margin, to whichever rider is going to win it. I think we know where this is going now. But also a little bit of a prediction for how it will actually unfold on track. So, Simon... Who's going to be champion? Obviously, I think I know where you're going with that. By how much and how is it actually going to happen? Uh, Bagnaya is going to win the championship by about, oh, let's see. So 21-19. I was doing maths. By Great. About, yeah, yeah, no, I'm doing maths. He's going to win the championship by about 14 points. Because Ooh. he's going to do the bare minimum in the sprint race. That uh, he's going to stay in touch in the sprint race, but Martin's going to win it, and then he's going to do the traditional championship winning wobble around in ninth place <laughs> to just make it home safely. Uh, while Martin romps to victory, but it doesn't matter because because of everything that's happened. Val, I mean, I, first of all, I I, just, I love that I've bullied you two into into having to do actual maths for this. <laughs> <laughs> I really feel my like my impact on this that it is this is this is what I did it makes me feel absolutely amazing. I think yeah, Banya's got this. I think I the I would say maybe by like seven points is what I would say because I think Martin will sweep Valencia, and I think it will be like, just because it's Peko Banya. I think it will be it'll be nervier than we think. I think he's going to come in, he's going to feel weird on Friday, probably flirt with Q1 or something, but I think ultimately he'll get two decent race results under his belt that will uh, will do enough, because you know, 21 point gap is a, is a substantial gap. If anything, it's maybe a bit too big, ideally for him, because last last year when the, the gap to Fabio Quartararo was really big, I think it really knocked him off balance. I think he, he couldn't quite find the right wavelength in terms of, you know, pushing or just riding around for the for the acceptable result. And that happens to, to title contenders with big leads sometimes. I think this time we might see something similar, but I still, again, this time I expect him to, to get it done. So I'm going to go opposite to you guys. I'm going to say Banyaya still, but by 30 points. And my maths for this is sprint race at Valencia. Martin wins it. Banyaya sort of ambles around fifth 
I get. Well, I basically think in Qatar sprint again. Martin does something awesome, and Banya is kind of ooh. Um, and then on Sunday, I think because he'll still ha- he'll really have to win still with Banyar a long way behind. Martin will go off the road early on while trying to fight with someone, fly back to the field and then go off the road again, maybe in a collision, maybe in just a solo crash. Banyai will finish third behind uh, Brad Binder and Mark Marquez in the rain. And that, I think, adds up to a 30-point 30 30 point winning margin. I mean, that's, you went with, like... You... The task was just to name a points cap. You didn't have to be this specific. Was... You made a storyline. You've written a script. It's like it's like uh, yeah. it's putting down a bet, but going, but only pay me out if this is if... the exact <laughs> sequence of events. It's a very, very novel approach to things. Did uh, did podcasts exist in two thousand six? Could someone have played this game with uh, with Rossi and Hayden? Podcasts have always existed, man. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was called the radio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I bet you. I bet you no one. In th- I bet you no one in our situation in two thousand and six predicted a Troy Bayless win, though. No, well, exactly, exactly. This is why I'm I'm hopeful that as much as it might look now like we have an obvious outcome, Banyai plays it safe. He wins the title. Uh, this this season has been too strange since August. This is this. I just think there's more there's more fun to come. I don't see Banyar losing this title, but I don't think it's going to be straightforward. And it's appropriate that actually we're kind of yawning at that point because this has been a slightly exhausted. Simon looks very much ready for bed. I've uh, I've done the F1 and MotoGP double shift this weekend, so I've now been up for a little over nineteen and a quarter hours. So. Listeners, we should get some rest before Valencia. You as well. This is gonna be, this is gonna be thrilling. I'm confident there is another twist to come. Thank you for your company during this season. We've got one more round to go. We'll be back with you straight after the Valencia race for one podcast. And I'm sure producer Johnny won't mind if we commit right now to doing a separate podcast after the test as well. When Mark Marquez hops on a Ducati. Um, Val, you are heading to Valencia to join Simon in the paddock. You're also rubbing yeah, your eyes now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you both said it. Forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> it just takes one of one of the various transport links to be a little late, and that that all goes out the window. But yes, hopefully, like last time. <laughs> yes. Basically, we'll we'll join you back here again seven days from now. I'll be in my house. Simon will be in the paddock, and Val will be on a bus somewhere between uh, Germany and Spain. Thanks for your company. We'll speak to you then. The Athletic.